and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Saqib A. Chowdhury, MD, who is lead author on an article published in the June Critical Care Medicine entitled, Impact of Advanced Healthcare Directives on Treatment Decision by Physicians and Patients with Acute Stroke. Chaudhry is a clinical research fellow at Zenat Qureshi Stroke Center at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He is also an associate editor for the Journal of Vascular Interventional Neurology and co-investigator for implications and challenges of long-term structured follow-up in the management of acute stroke patients. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Chaudhry. Thank you very much, Dr. Weinstein, for giving us the opportunity. Thank you. Your paper provides a very interesting perspective regarding advanced directives, perhaps in general, but certainly more specifically in patients with uh, stroke, and gives a nice um, review of uh, some of the historic background uh, of advanced directives in stroke and patient preferences uh, regarding uh, disability. And I was hoping you can elaborate on that a little bit. As we all know, stroke is the leading cause of long-term disability in the United States, and stroke survivors have significantly lower quality of ment- uh, not only mental but physical health. The decrease of the quality of life is more, more pronounced as compared to any other medical illnesses, and as we know, a wide range of uh, severity is commonly seen in stroke patients. And uh, despite there was a study done in 2005 which showed almost 1.1 million stroke survivors uh, have some kind of disability ranging between from all the way to mild severity to severe disabilities. And here I would like to mention two previously published studies, one done by Dr. Hanger and the other one done by Dr. Nakagawa, and uh, they actually study the impact of the stroke on the quality of the life after afterwards. Dr. Hanger actually did a survey of the stroke survivors and uh, in which we learned that almost one-third of the elderly individuals who have some kind of stroke disability would rather like to have a painless death as compared to minor stroke disability. And in the same study, they also showed that 80% of the people would rather like to die as compared to the severe disability comprising of uh, hemiplegia or quadriplegia. And the second study, which was done by Dr. Nakagawa, he did a survey of uh, young adults in the United States and showed that about one-third of the young adults would rather not like to have aggressive procedures. And in the same studies, they, they were able to demonstrate that about 60% of the, of the young adults would rather not like to have any kind of severe disability after uh, going through the aggressive procedures and would rather like to have a comfort care uh, measures taken if, if the clinical situation comes, comes to that point. In that study, one-third of the patient family would rather not like to have the, the procedures after seeing the outcomes of those aggressive procedures. So in this scenario, we are, we are in a very difficult situation to how aggressive we should go with these aggressive procedures in, in the scenario that we don't have any, any further feedback from the patient perspective. The only thing we're left with is 
the, our own physician's clinical judgment and a limited feedback from the family perspective. So we performed this study to identify the impact of existing advanced directive, which, which are usually done when the patient can make the clinical decisions and its impact on the clinical decisions if the situation arises. Yeah. I always have trouble interpreting some of those studies in that you know, I take care of a lot of patients with spinal cord injury and the, the ability for humans to, to adapt to new circumstances despite imagining a, a very poor quality of life before things actually occur, so before an, an acute illness occurs, the, the change over time I, I find remarkable so that while many folks would say that they would never live or want to live as um, a tetraplegic, many patients end up doing so and living quite fulfilling lives. So I, I always wonder how to, how to interpret that information. You're absolutely right. So the, study, the two studies which I mentioned earlier, one was you know, a completely healthy survivors and the other study was the stroke survivors. So that's why I was trying to show the difference in the opinion. But uh, you're, you're right. You know, it's a very difficult situation for us to make the judgments how these severely debilitating diseases impact the judgment of, of the patients after the disease. A lot of people take initiative saying that they would not like to have the procedures, but when they are actually in that situation, then it's become difficult. And that's, that's the whole difficulty of having an advanced directive, why we don't have a clear-cut wishes written in there and uh, you know, making the judgment become so hard in those scenarios. Great, yeah. Can you elaborate a bit more, both broadly and specifically, about how you decided to go about uh, providing um, some answers to these questions? Well, to study, it's, it's a very difficult topic because selection of the patients in a, a case and control kind of impact cannot be applied here. So what we did is we, we selected 28 consecutive patients who presented to a comprehensive stroke center. And based on that, we the study consisted of uh, three basic components. One was the clinical description of the patient presentation. Second one was a copy of the advanced directive, which was available at the time of the presentation to the emergency department. And the third was study questionnaire. Yeah, so, so the, the 28 patients that you selected out of um, the, the many more, the criteria then were that they all had advanced directives available in, in uh, a document form on admission? Actually, the way the study was done, we do have a prospectively directory maintained at our institution, and uh, we went through uh, 271 patient charts and selected the 28 patients who mentioned they have the advanced directive. At the, at the presentation. And then from those 78 patients, we selected the 28 consecutive patients who had the advanced directive at the time of the presentation. Probably those advanced directives were scanned into the system or presented by the family at the time of the presentation to the emergency department. So it was about one-third of the patient who presented to the emergency department had their advanced directive already either scanned in or they came with the advanced directive either with, with a family member or from other agencies. I see. And then take us through the, the rest of the methods. What did you then do with the patient records and the advanced directive and the survey? 
As I mentioned earlier, the study consisted of three basic components. The first one was a brief description of the study presentation. What we did is we went through the clinical impression of the neurologist assessing the patient in the emergency department, what is the severity of the neurological deficits based on NIHSS score, ECS score, patient previous comorbidities, presenting symptoms, the time of the onset of the symptoms, then radiological impression, and also the, the real images of the presentation. We make one to two paragraphs of the presentation, and all the records were de-identified to meet all the human resources protections law. The second component, study questionnaire, which consisted of 28 clinical decisions. Questions were selected from the previous clinical trials which have already been published or the observational studies. In the past, these clinical factors have been shown to impact the clinical outcome of the patients. We published one study based on these questionnaires in neurocritical care last year showing the impact of the hospital patient scoring higher on these questions were more like to have less inpatient mortality. So these questions were then further categorized into three things, routine complexity decisions, which are part of the routine care and do not require any special consideration or informed consent from the patient. The second, and the second category was moderate complexity and clinical decisions, where we usually don't get informed consent, but a meaningful discussion is usually taken place between the physician and the family members if needed. The third was high complexity decisions which usually need a surgery, anesthesia, and usually need informed consent from a family member or if, if, if the patient is in, in a position to give a consent. The last but not the least component was advanced directive which was already scanned in into the uh, that these advanced directives were further reviewed by two lawyers and those uh, lawyers have uh, enough experience clinical studies and the clinical trials and they actually rated the uh, rated the advanced directive based on highly specific moderate uh, specific someone specific or non specific things then we we studied the impact of it I see. So um, if I may say it in my own words to make sure that I understand, um, mm -hmm. you, you selected 28 patients who uh, had stroke that presented through the emergency department were seen acutely by uh, a stroke neurologist. They all had uh, advanced directives at the time of either presentation or admission to, to, the, to the hospital. Um, and then you took a series of, um, of a survey that, that outlined the important interventions that improve outcomes from stroke and asked uh, a group of neurologists uh, whether or not they would be appropriate for this patient, given the clinical scenario that you abstracted from the chart, and tried to compare differences between whether or not the neurologist uh, was aware of advanced directives or not. Yes, you took it absolutely right. To further elaborate on that, the group of physicians which uh, took part into this consisted of neurosurgeon, neurointensivist, vascular neurologist, and also one vascular neurologist from Japan. And uh, they, they were presented the clinical scenarios with advanced directives, and they were asked to make a clinical judgment what they will take the decision of making the clinical judgment as yes or no. Mm -hmm. and then studying the impact of the advanced directive on those clinical scenarios. 
So the, the way the study was done was actually in two different phases. The, in the first phase, 14 of the patients had the advanced directive and and 14 patients did not have the advanced directive. Then we presented the same patients after four weeks to the same physicians in a crossover manner and then switched the advanced directive. The, the ones who did not have the advanced directive in the first phase had, it, had the advanced directive with the clinical scenario and the ones who had it presented in the first scenario did not have it. So in this way, we were able to study the impact of the clinical judgment based in the presence or absence of advanced directive. And when the, um, the stroke experts reviewed the clinical scenarios with the advanced directives, did they have the actual advanced directive that the patient presented with? Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, the advanced directive in the first phase, advanced directive was present. The second phase of the same patient, the advanced directive was absent. I see. So we can see whether a clinical decision which was taken in the absence of advanced directive was changed or not changed on the on the basis of advanced directive. And then as a third component, you had uh, two attorneys review the advanced directives uh, more specifically to uh, evaluate the quality, or I should really say, I guess, the specificness of the advanced directives. That's, that's exactly right. These advanced directives were presented to the lawyers and they were given a specific questions to rate the advanced directive based on what kind of information is available in the advanced directive, whether the advanced directive clearly states what decisions should be taken and what should not be taken, whether the advanced directive gave us some recommendation if anything happens in a scenario where patient cannot take any clinical decisions, well, in that all foreseeable treatment scenarios, the decisions, and there is some direction to take the decisions or not. And then whether compromising all these factors, the advanced directive was comprehensive, subjective, or poor. Which of the uh, 28 treatment decisions uh, were considered or offered or were performed on the, uh, the patients in, in their actual um, course of therapies? No. This was actually not based on the actual decisions which were taken. This right. is all you know, based on the study questionnaire. Did, did you also look at the uh, actual clinical courses of the patients uh, and as to which of the 28 uh, treatment decision items were uh, either offered or um, uh, actually uh, carried out uh, in the course of clinical treatment of these patients? Uh, well, in this study, we did not study the actual decisions which were taken in the neurointensive care. This was all based on the study questionnaire and, um, and presenting a real clinical scenario to the physicians and then seeing their treatment and judgments based on the advanced directive and not advanced directives. But to be very specific, these judgments were not compared to the actual decisions which were made in the uh, intensive care. I see, yeah. And so can you take us through uh, some of the results uh, regarding the, the medical decisions that the uh, physicians thought were either appropriate or not appropriate? I guess yes or no, right, based on the advanced directives. Sure. So for the study results, 30.3% of patients presenting to the emergency department had uh, 
advance directive either scanned in or available later on in the course of it, the agreement of the treatment, and we found that a few uh, highest correlation or agreement was found in treatment of the fever and uh, deep venous thrombosis treatment, and the lowest was agreement was found among the physicians for intensive care unit monitoring based on the family patient consideration outside the accepted clinical criteria. Other thing was we also found that there was a higher, a good agreement uh, for routine complexity clinical decisions between physicians, and there was lower agreement between the moderate or high complexity decisions. Uh, we also found that the treatment decisions uh, or the choices of withholding the treatment was remarkably similar among the raters based on the presence or absence of the advanced directive. Also, the, the last thing was the treatment and decision to withhold the intracranial pressure monitoring or intraventricular catheter placement on the basis of the severe stroke presentation was not different on the basis of presence or absence of advanced healthcare directive. And so um, when you say uh, agreement, um for instance, for, for the treatment of fever, uh, you're saying that uh, the advanced directive had uh, no impact uh, on the treatment of fever or not the treatment of fever, or you're talking about the uh, agreement amongst the, the, um, the stroke experts who were reviewing the clinical scenarios? Basically, uh, the first thing was agreement between the physicians. So there was an almost complete agreement on the basis of the fever and deep venous thrombosis between the physicians. The advanced directive did not play much of a role, the agreement between the physicians who were there. We studied the, the impact of advanced directive based on the routine complexity decisions, and so fever was among, among those. There was, at that point, uh, we did not uh, see much of a difference uh, between, the, between the high complexity decision and moderate complexity decision. I, I, I believe um, that if you look at uh, treatments across all complexities, there really was very little difference um, between whether or not the, whether or not the physician had access to the advanced directive. There, the treatment uh, decisions uh, were very similar between the two scenarios. That's right. And were, so were there any that were um, that demonstrated some some difference or some um, significant change in, in having the advanced directive available? The only treatment decisions that showed some impact of the uh, advanced directive was intensive care unit monitoring as long as uh, the patient is an acceptable candidate based on the institution criteria. 32% uh, was withheld in the absence of um, advanced directive weather and as compared to 8% was withheld in the presence of advanced directive. And also some, some treatment for defibrillation in case of cardiac arrest was withheld in 29% as compared to 19% in the presence of directive. But uh, since we have uh, we have only 28 patients, we really cannot uh, emphasize these results because you know the power of the study is not enough to say that whether these decisions were really impacted by the advanced directive or not. So let, let's start from table one as you've as you've described. Um, 
And if you can uh, tell us, so in, in Table 1, there's treatment decisions, and there, there are two broad columns in the presence of advanced directives and in the absence of advanced directives. And then with each, within each, there's a percentage agreement uh, per patient um, uh, to choose yes. And then there's a proportion of times withheld in 168 treatment decisions. And just trying to figure out exactly the difference uh, in what those two columns mean um, for, for the listeners. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking through it in many of the columns, uh, especially in the routine complexity decision making. Um, the they add up to 100%, which makes sense to me uh, as you move along. And, and in a couple of the routine complexity treatment decisions, they, they don't add up to 100%, and there's a higher proportion of times in which uh, treatment decisions would be withheld. Can you help me just understand that a little bit more? So basically what we will start on the initial concept of the study, the, there are two things. One is the agreement between the decisions. And the agreement can be on the basis of uh, yes, go ahead and do the clinical treatment or the procedures. And most of the columns where you see that it has add up to 100%, those are routinely complex because most of the physicians took the decision of going ahead and doing the treatment. For, for example, a venous thrombosis treatment, hyperactive treatment, and status epilepticus treatment. But I will put another uh, scenario where some of the physicians agree on the basis, yes, go ahead and do the treatment, and some of the physicians, and in another clinical scenario, most of the clinical physicians do not agree on going ahead during the treatment. So let's take an example of uh, monitoring of the patient in the intensive care unit. In one of the patients, four of the clinical physicians agree on doing the treatment, then agreement is around 66%, four out of the six. And if four out of the six physicians do not agree on keeping the patient anymore in, in the intensive care unit, the agreement still remains to be 66%, but withheld of the treatment also rises because patient, four of the physicians did not see the, see the, the need of uh, uh, keeping the patient in the intensive care unit anymore. So the agreement can, uh, can be uh, close to 100%, but withheld of the treatment can also rise on the basis of different modalities. If we go down into the moderate uh, complexity decisions and high complexity uh, decisions, some of those add up to the 100%, but uh, some of the, uh, them do not add up into 100%. The probable explanation to this is some of the physicians agreed on going ahead and doing the treatment, and so that was a complete agreement. But in some, some scenarios, they agreed to not to do the treatment. So the agreement remains close to you know, higher percentages, but the, at the same time, withholding the treatment also rises. And if we, if we compare the two columns based on presence and absence of advanced directives, we really see not a whole lot of difference between the clinical scenarios. So that's how we conclude that uh, there are a couple of options where, where advanced directives did show some impact on, on, on the clinical judgment, but not a whole lot. And those in particular were some of the uh, routine complexity decisions? That, that's exactly it. The more agreement was seen in routine clinical judgment, but lesser was seen in the highly complex and moderate complex, where we really need uh, the advanced directive to play its role to give us the, the directive how, how the clinical care should be, uh, should be advanced.
Yeah. So, so why did the advanced directives not have much of an, a, a play? Um, how can we how can we interpret this data and, and and still tell our patients that they need to fill out advanced directives? Well, uh, we think that there can be two possible explanations. What what we we did find that you know advanced directives are you know like are, are being used, but probably uh, the first thing I would like to uh, say that advanced directives. Uh, do not have adequate or specific uh, information to influence of the medical decision making. So we, uh, we did see that uh, advanced directives uh, are uh, routinely being used in about one third of, uh, of, of the clinical scenarios, but uh, we think they do not have a whole lot of impact on the clinical judgment. There can be two possible explanations for these findings. First, the advanced directives in the current format do not provide adequate or specific information to influence the medical decision making. And secondly, the physicians do not make their treatment based on the advanced directive. Rather, they make their decisions based on the feedback on their own clinical judgment and the limited feedback which they get from the family. Um, the I don't remember if I saw this in, in the uh, article or not, but the the uh, the nature of the advanced directives, uh, in terms of the choices that patients had made, um, did the majority of uh, patients have advanced directives that uh, chose to forego uh, many life sustaining therapies, or um, or was there a mix? Well, here that's why we brought the uh, the lawyer to evaluate that work directive. Okay. What we saw in uh, in our study that you know almost half of the advanced directive did not have you know clear cut information on the basis you know what needs to be done if a clinical you know scenario comes up to that that uh, presentation. Only four of the advanced directive were very clear scenarios which were written based on. What, what needs to be done if uh, if a specific uh, uh, scenario comes into that? And then we did a, a further analysis, which is you use only those four patients, and, and then we did see some impact of uh, when we did exploratory analysis on the basis of those those four advanced directives, where uh, we had uh, clear-cut information provided by the patient that they did impact clinical decisions based on ICU monitoring, uh, acute hypertensive response treatment, and uh, further, further along. See, so, so a sub-analysis of the four patients that had fairly specific um, and contextual advanced directives uh, did influence uh, decision-making by the uh, experienced clinicians reviewing the scenarios. So it's interesting. So yeah, if you you start with a thirty percent of patients um, uh, have advanced directives when they present with an acute stroke, uh, based on on your data at least, and then uh, four out of twenty eight have actual advanced directives uh, that are um, meaningful uh, and helpful in in a, in a particular situation. That's a very small percentage of patients who are presenting with um, at least a document. Uh, that demonstrate and help guide uh, therapies. Sure, yeah. I'm like that's that's the real message that most of the times either the advanced directives are missing, and if 
even if they are present, they don't have the adequate information to make the clinical decisions, and that uh, that prohibits us to you know like the utilization of the advanced directive in real clinical world. So what uh, what can we do moving forward, and how can uh, how can we improve this uh, process uh, for both patients with. Uh, for patients with strokes and other other patients who present with uh, serious uh, critical illness, it's a fairly uh, you know difficult uh, questions to answer. But uh, at this time, we definitely need more to study you know how the advanced directive can be improved. Uh, in conclusion, I would like to say that our results mandate the steps need to be taken for the clear and clear understanding among the patient and the lawyers who are involved in make, making the advanced, advanced directive. We also think uh, that uh, maybe involving the physicians in providing their professional opinion while, while the advanced directives are being prepared and uh, giving uh, their professional opinion and uh, uh, disease-specific uh, clinical scenarios presenting to the patient and asking them what would they like to do might be able to uh, improve the quality of the advanced directive and those things need to be uh, included in, in the advanced directive in, in, uh, uh, later on if a situation arises. We know stroke is a fairly acute, uh, acute illness and not much of the, it's not a long-term disease, um, so we don't really don't have much of a time to, uh, to discuss the options once the stroke hits and, and causes this dis and debilitating effect. So maybe uh, in advance when the advanced directives are prepared, if the uh, physicians can provide their professional opinion, that might help in improving the quality of the advanced directives. Yeah, I mean, stroke in many ways is uh, is similar to my world in in, in trauma and uh, uh, critical care, uh, in that you know patients are faced with a very sudden change in condition and and function, um, and at times with uncertain outcomes and uh, decision making can can be very challenging. You know, I wonder uh, perhaps advanced directives should. I think many of have both spoken and written about this, but the idea of having advanced directives really outline more so a patient's uh, goals uh, and what's important to them uh, in in life and in function, um, rather than necessarily disease specific, because there's so many different scenarios that can that can occur that it, it does become hard to add context to the advanced directive. Sure. Well, thank you. It's certainly a very interesting uh, study in, in some regards. Um, does paint uh, uh, a difficult uh, problem we, that, that we do face uh, in uh, patients with stroke and uh, other acute illnesses and uh, does suggest that there's much work to be done uh, to, to improve these processes of care and, and improve um, uh, that type of decision-making. Thank you very much for giving us the opportunity and, uh, and letting us discuss our uh, study in more detail. And we really hope that this will be the first step in further study that needs to be done and advancing uh, the, uh, the clinical decision-making process in the real world. Great. And thank you so much for your time. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. 
For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Ultrasound imaging enhances the practitioner's ability to evaluate, diagnose, and treat critical care patients. SCCM's two-day course, Fundamentals of Critical Care Ultrasound, taking place August 7th to 8th, 2013 in Washington, D.C., USA, will offer didactic presentations and hands-on skill stations for performing and interpreting ultrasound imaging. Physicians who want to expand beyond the fundamentals should attend the Advanced Ultrasound course, which is designed to emphasize the specialty-specific use of echocardiography in the ICU. The Advanced Ultrasound course will be held on August 9, 2013 in Washington, D.C., USA. For further details or to register, visit www.sccm.org ultrasound. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.